The Presidency of the United States is a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Hello and welcome to the Presidencies of the United States. I'm your host, Jerry Landry. As this is an episode of our special Vice Presidencies of the United States series, I am joined by my better half and co-host, Alex Lawson. Alex, thank you for being here. Well, thanks for having me, Jerry. I hope uh, I don't mess things up too much today, but this is July 4th, so I don't know if you've mentioned that yet, but I think this is a pretty appropriate day to talk about Mr. John Adams. Absolutely. This is our actual first episode. We already had, we recorded our kind of intro to this series, but this is, we are finally getting to talk about an actual vice president. So, and as Alex said, this is July 4th. Just in case the acoustics are a little different, uh, we are actually recording while on vacation because we were going to be away from Presidency's HQ for the 4th. So hope everything works out well. We shall see. But before we get started, Alex, how are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Um, looking at this gorgeous view of the mountains, North Carolina mountains, which is where we're vacationing. And uh, I think it's just a perfect backdrop for talking about the first vice president and second president of the country, which we'll hear more about in a minute. Absolutely. And that's the thing. So this is an important day for numerous reasons. You know, this is a day, and especially with Mr. Adams, this was a day that meant a lot to him because this was the day... That was, you know, we we remember the Declaration of Independence. Now, one thing we should note here, John Adams actually thought we were going to celebrate Independence Day on July 2nd, because that's actually when they voted to declare independence. July 4th was when the document was approved. Mm -hmm. So he was a couple of days off in that. And knowing Mr. Adams, he probably held a little grudge about that for quite a while. I'm sure he did. But it's also a momentous day in terms of presidential history and especially for Mr. Adams, because on this date in 1826, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson both passed away. You know, Mr. Adams was in Massachusetts. Mr. Jefferson was in Virginia. And then a few years later, James Monroe passed away on this same date. But this day isn't just about presidential deaths, because Calvin Coolidge was born on this day. Well, thank goodness something, uh, you know, non-morose happened on July 4th. (laughs) Gotta have something to celebrate, you know, the Declaration of Independence, Calvin Coolidge, you know, these things. But yes, so we are going to be talking about John Adams. Now, for listeners of presidencies, we've talked quite a bit about John Adams already. We have an entire Adams presidency series out there where we covered his pre-presidency in two episodes. We covered his post-presidency in an episode. So I'm sure you're asking yourselves, why am I listening to yet another episode about John Adams? So first of all, he's everybody's favorite curmudgeon, you know? Yes. Who doesn't love John Adams? Well, except for Alexander Hamilton, but I digress. But we're really going to focus in on his tenure as vice president. And as listeners know, that's a time that really doesn't get a lot of attention 
when talking about John Adams are really most of the presidents who served for some time as vice president. So that's really going to be our focus today. And there is, you know, it, it's one of those things that's typically covered, you see in biographies, it's kind of glossed over, but there is more to talk about. I actually, I've drafted a 14 page outline for this episode, just in case you're worried that there's nothing to talk about. But before we get started, just for anybody who may need a refresher, who may just need some reminders of Adams's overall life, because we're not going to really dwell on that. We're really going to focus in on his vice presidency here. Alex is going to read John Adams's entry in the biographical directory of the United States Congress. I'll have a link to it on the show notes for this episode. But just to get us started, Alex, would you mind reading that? That way we get a, a sense of his overall life. Sure. John Adams, a delegate from Massachusetts and a vice president and second president of the United States, born in Braintree, Massachusetts, October 19, 1735. Graduated from Harvard College in 1755, studied law, admitted to the bar in 1758, and commenced practice in Suffolk County, joined the Sons of Liberty, and argued against the Stamp Act, was elected to represent Boston in the General Court in 1768, member of the Continental Congress from 1774 to 1777, signed the Declaration of Independence, and proposed George Washington of Virginia for General of the American Army became a member of the Board of War, but resigned to accept appointment as Commissioner to the Court of France, Minister Plenipotentiary to Holland, 1782, First Minister to England, 1785 to 1788, elected in 1788 as the first Vice President of the United States, with George Washington as President, re-elected in 1792, and served from April 21, 1789 to March 3, 1797. Elected President of the United States and served from March 4, 1797 to March 3, 1801. Delegate to the Constitutional Convention of Massachusetts in 1820. Died in Quincy, Massachusetts on July 4, 1826. Interment under the Old First Congregational Church, now called the United First Parish Church. And we have actually been to that site. We have. Very powerful. And oddly enough, we were down at the Adams's tomb when, I don't know if folks remember a few years back when they had an earthquake that damaged the Washington Monument, we were actually down when that earthquake struck. So thankfully, the Adamses protected us. <laughs> yes. Were they protecting us or were they trying to give us a message? I'm not sure. We're just, <laughs> we're, we're going to say protection. Okay. Protection. Protection. That works. That works. But. Yes, yeah, so that is kind of the high-level overview of John Adams's life. And to prepare for this episode, Alex actually listened to some episodes of Friends of the Podcast, uh, Bridge Presidential Histories, Civics and Coffee, and Plotting Through the Presidents to kind of get us in that mind frame to be able to know what was going on with John Adams outside of his vice presidency since we're going to dive into that, and then at the end, we're going to rank him. We're going to be talking some in that ranking about his overall life and career. But again, just really wanted to focus in on that vice presidential tenure. 
So, Alex, are we ready to dive into John Adams, vice president? Sure. Probably more than he was. <laughs> <laughs> yes. And we've got a few quotes about that. Oh, yeah. So one other item that I think we need to know before we get started is just to kind of get a sense of where the Adams family is at this point. And no, we're not talking about Morticia and Gomez. <laughs> oh, goodness. I'm sorry. I had to. So... Of course, John married Abigail Adams in 1764. So by the time he assumed office as vice president, they had been married for 24 years. Their oldest, a daughter named Abigail, but who the family referred to as Nabby, had been born the year after they were married in 1765. And she had married her husband, William Stephen Smith, who had been Adams' secretary while he was serving as U.S. Minister to Britain. They married in 1786. So their oldest is now married. Their oldest son, John Quincy Adams, a guy who we also talk quite a bit about in presidencies, had been born in 1767, and he was followed by Charles Adams in 1770 and Thomas Adams in 1772. So by the time John Adams is becoming president, their children are getting older, they're starting to establish their lives, they're still relatively young, but... Just know that this family is growing up, they're reaching maturity, and starting their own careers. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creo so, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast. So, John Adams had been away for years. He had actually been abroad since November 1779. So for the greater part of a decade, he was abroad. But he returned to the United States on June 17, 1788. He was treated as a general hero upon his return. And as historian John Furley noted, quote, during the next few weeks, he was approached about holding virtually every important office in the land, each of which save for the presidency of the United States, which, of course, was reserved for George Washington, appeared to be his for the asking. So he's in a good position coming back from his diplomatic service. He can pretty much have any office that he wants. A month after his return, John decided on an office to which to aim, that of Vice President of the United States. Now, Abigail said that they considered that all other offices would be, quote-unquote, beneath himself. Mm. So he can't go for the top one. That's already, everybody knows, that's Washington. But this is kind of seen as the highest that he can go for the time being. Now, with the matter of the first presidential election being settled, and unlike elections nowadays, you know, the campaigning goes on for a while, but in this case, it was like the election went on for a while. So it took some time to get things settled. Uh, states were still ratifying the Constitution. They were trying to get the system together. So while all that was happening, John and Abigail, who had joined him abroad a few years into his diplomatic service, they were taking some time to just get caught up with family, as well as settle into the house that eventually came to be called Peacefield, which they had purchased while they were abroad. And 
so this is a fascinating story. You know, they they were abroad and they had admired this house for years. And somebody wrote them and said, hey, you know that house that y'all love? It's available. It's on the market. And they were like, bye, 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 bye. But they were abroad for years, finally had to come back. Um, family had helped to get things set up so that they could come back to this new home. Very cool. And we've actually been to Peacefield as well, that we same have. trip. Yes. Yeah. On that same day, as a matter of fact. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Before the earthquake. Before the earthquake. <laughs> So though there were a few other names that were being talked about for the vice presidency, you know, you had folks in the mix, you had John Hancock, who was being talked about, um, a few other big names that were being floated about. But once it was known that Adams was wanting that office, those candidacies kind of fizzled Mm -hmm. and folks started rallying around John Adams. Now, there was one problem. Elections were a bit different than they are nowadays in presidential elections. So at the time, it was basically each elector cast two ballots into the same pool. It wasn't that there was one for president and one for vice president. It was just they were thrown into the same pool. And whoever got the most votes became president. The one who got the second highest votes became vice president. So, Alex, can you see... Some potential issues with this? Uh, Yes, especially considering what I've heard about John Adams' vanity. I would imagine this was a pretty contentious setup. Uh, Yeah, and come to find out it was. Especially, well, anyway, go ahead. Yes, (laughs) we will get to that. But because they knew they wanted him as vice president, it wasn't as simple as saying, oh, we're just going to vote for John Adams as vice president. Everybody had to vote for George Washington, of course. But if everybody also voted for John Adams and he was unanimously chosen on that second ballot, they would have the same number of votes. Mm-hmm. Big problem. Yeah. And we'll discuss in a couple of episodes time when that became a big issue because there wasn't a designation, mm-hmm. it would end up going into a tie-breaking vote of who was actually going to be president. But how could they get Adams to be the next highest vote getter. Well, this guy called Alexander Hamilton of New York Mm. had an idea. He was agreeable to the Washington Adams ticket. He decided, you know, John Adams, yeah, he's a good guy. I think we can have him for the first vice president. He really said that? (laughs) Not in so many words, but he was was like, "I I guess he'll do. Okay. I could believe that. But... Hamilton wanted to make sure that George Washington ended up at the top of the ticket. And so he worked in political circles to ensure that a few of the second ballots went to other candidates instead of Adams. Adams would only learn of this years later. And as you can imagine, John Adams was not happy when he learned about this. He complained of the, quote, dark and insidious manner of his plotting. But it worked. The electors cast their ballots, and everybody kind of knows that this is going to happen. Except it wasn't official until they were counted. The date set for the first United States Congress to begin was March 4th, 1789. But it took over a month before both houses had enough members to achieve a quorum and organize themselves. 
nothing could be done until Congress organized itself because Congress was supposed to count the ballots. Finally, on April 6th, they were able to count the electoral votes. Surprise, surprise, George Washington had 69 votes out of 69 electors. Adams was next at 34 votes, followed by John Jay with nine, John Hancock at four, and 22 other votes scattered amongst various candidates. So, huzzah, we have our first president and vice president. Of these votes, Adams got votes from all the electors from Massachusetts and New Hampshire, a majority from Connecticut and Pennsylvania, votes from half of the electors from Virginia, and one electoral vote from New Jersey. So, you know, at the time, that was a a good geographic distance, but many of his votes came from New England. Mm -hmm. Surprise, surprise. On April 12th, the messenger arrived at the Adams' home in Braintree, Massachusetts, to bring the news of Adams' election. Again, it wasn't necessarily a surprise. Everybody already knew how the votes had gone down. They just needed to make it official. Adams was ready to travel to the nation's capital of New York City as soon as he was officially notified of his election. But, as you said, Alex, Mr. Adams was a bit unhappy that he only received 34 votes Mm -hmm. out of 69 electors. Again, he didn't know about Hamilton's scheme, and so he took the fact that he received votes from less than half of the electors as a slight after all the public service that he had done on behalf of the nation. Nearly a month after taking office, Adams wrote to his friend Benjamin Rush, asserting, quote, Is not my election to this office, in the scurvy manner it was done, a curse rather than a blessing? Is there gratitude? Is there justice? Is there common sense or decency in this business? Is it not an indelible stain on our country, countrymen, and constitution? I assure you, I think it's so. And nothing but an apprehension of great mischief and the final failure of the government from my refusal and assigning my reasons for it prevented me from spurning it. Mm-hmm. So he's going into this office reluctantly. Bitter party of one. Bitter party of one. Before he even gets started. But he did go to New York. He arrived on April 20th and was received in his approach by, quote, the city's horse brigade, along with congressmen and others on horses and in carriages. Cannons were fired and an ode delivered in his honor. So he was received warmly. Hopefully that helped take some of the bitterness off. Mm. As we see, it, it really didn't. It was still there. But, you know, hopefully it made him feel a little better. Folks are actually excited to see him. And so the next day, in the presence of the members of the Senate, the 53-year-old John Adams was inaugurated as the first vice president of the United States. One of the first senators who had been memorialized over the ages for keeping a diary of the early days of the new Congress, Senator William McClay of Pennsylvania, described Adams' inaugural speech as, quote, dull and uninspiring. Ooh. Yeah, McClay is one of those characters that... We're glad that he kept a diary because otherwise we wouldn't know what was happening in the Senate at that time besides just, you know, the official vote counts and all that. But he was also rather curmudgeonly himself and had very strong opinions about people, including but not limited to John Adams. Mm. Did he and um, Hamilton get along well? No. Okay. Interesting. Too much alike. (laughs) 
Well, so McClay, he would go on to become a Democratic Republican. Okay, so yeah. he was against the administration. Right. But he had a particular dislike for John Adams. Like, numerous times he would say really bad things about him. Mm-hmm. But as this new legislative body began its work, the new vice president got drawn into the first debate in the Senate that has been dubbed the presidential title controversy of 1789. And he made it clear in these early days that as, quote, the presiding officer in the Senate, he sought to lead, not merely to officiate. So we kind of talked about this in our introductory episode. Really, the only official role of the vice president besides, you know, assuming the role of the presidency, if the president is incapable, is presiding over the Senate. But what does that mean? They had no clue. John Adams took it as, I can get involved in Senate business. Mm -hmm. And we will see how that goes. As Kathleen Bartoloni Tuazon describes in detail in her book, For Fear of an Elective King, George Washington and the Presidential Title Controversy of 1789, at the time in Europe, titles were seen as conveying authority. You know, this was a big thing. You had a title that made you important, that made you respected by other nations. However, these titles were also associated with monarchy and a God-given right to rule. The first Senate debate dove into how authority could and should be invested in the office of the presidency without going too far and turning this elective office into a kingship. Mm -hmm. Unfortunately for Adams, he would not come out well in this, as given his experience as a diplomat in Europe, he constantly remarked that European powers would not take the new chief executive seriously without, quote, a royal or at least a princely title to maintain the reputation, authority, and dignity of the president. So he's coming and he's saying from his perspective, years in Europe, hey guys, they're not going to respect George Washington if we don't give him some lofty title. Mm. That's what they're used to. That's what we need. And thus, while Adams was willing to allow himself to be, quote, addressed merely as excellency, he proposed that President Washington be addressed either as, quote, his highness or, quote, his most benign highness. Because William McClay's diary is one of the only primary sources that we have for debates in the early Senate, and McClay pronounced Adams to have, quote, pompous and lordly distinctions, and a poem came out around the same time titled The Dangerous Vice... And this was a poem and a name, quote, that offered a punning critique of both the monarchist vice of promoting a regal executive title and the vice presidential office that Adams held. Adams has ever since been criticized unfairly as having monarchist tendencies when nothing could be further from the truth. Instead, as described by Bartoloni Tuazon, quote, Adams evidenced an almost overwhelming concern over the balance of power between the federal executive and legislative branches, especially a Senate comprised of powerful elites with state-oriented agendas, and believed only some form of highness or majesty would assure the presidency of the strength it would need. Mm-hmm. So Adams's concern, and he's, presenting it as, you know, hey, we need to think about the powers of Europe. But in the back of his mind, he's also got, oh my gosh, these people are the elites right here in front of me. 
that I'm presiding over. If the presidency doesn't have that power, that authority, the Senate could rule the show. And so he saw the title as giving the president that authority. And so at one point, he put forward the title of, quote, His Highness the President of the United States of America and Protector of Their Liberties. Mm. Yeah, that one didn't go over so well. Ultimately, the Senate would decide upon the title of Mr. President to address Washington. Meanwhile, behind his back, Adams was dubbed his Rotundity. Oof. He wasn't off to a good start at all. (laughs) My gosh. Well, I wonder what Adams thought about Mr. President as the title. Did he feel like it was too informal? He, from what I've read, he felt that, you know, they need it more. Hmm. Ultimately, it would prove to be just the title that was needed. But it also reflects just kind of Adams had been abroad for the better part of a decade. Mm -hmm. And so much had changed in the United States it reflected that he was kind of out of touch. touch. Yeah. Yeah. But just as Adams was navigating these uncertain early days of the constitutional government, so too was President Washington following his inauguration on April 30th, 1789. As there was no precedent on what it meant to be president, Washington asked Adams, along with Alexander Hamilton, John Jay, Henry Knox, and James Madison for their thoughts, quote, on the line of conduct he should pursue with Congress and the public to maintain the dignity of office without subjecting himself to the imputation of superciliousness. So basically he was saying, okay, what do I do? What's the right approach to take? How do I make myself available, but not necessarily too available? Mm -hmm. Adams replied to Washington's request three days after it was decided that Mr. President was to be the chief executive's title, a far cry from Adams' proposals, And the vice president acknowledged that he was, quote, conscious that my long residence abroad may have impressed me with views of things incompatible with the present temper or feelings of our fellow citizens. Adams felt that when it came to domestic politicians and the public, the president should be more modest and trust the instincts that he had developed that had gotten him to this present prominent position in the public esteem. However, Adams still expressed his belief that, quote, a measure of splendor and majesty when dealing with foreign ambassadors would be beneficial. Mm -hmm. So he's saying, okay, I'm kind of out of touch. You seem to have a good handle on PR here. So just trust yourself. You can be a little more informal, but when we've got folks coming in from abroad, they're going to expect you to show the pomp and circumstance. Mm -hmm. This would prove to be one of the few times during the next eight years that the president would consult with Vice President Adams. The aftermath of the titles controversy left Washington with the impression that Adams was, as he said, out of touch with the public mood. And President Washington trusted his instincts that the vice president was someone to keep at arm's length. Historian Lindsay Shervinsky speculated in her work, The Cabinet, George Washington, and the Creation of an American Institution, that, quote, the relationship between the vice president and the president might have evolved differently if the nation had elected John Jay or another of Washington's confidants as vice president instead of Adams. So Washington and Adams, they knew each other. Mm -hmm. But again, Adams had been abroad for so many years when so much was going on. And Washington had worked more closely with people like James Madison, John Jay, people who had been around in the U.S. at the time. And so 
Adam's coming in and Adam's seeming out of touch, it's like, why should I trust this guy? Why should I bring him into my inner circle? And, oh, by the way, the Constitution doesn't say anything about him having any role in the executive branch. Adams would make a couple of rather poignant remarks about his role as vice president. (laughs) And, you know, as we were approaching this and kind of listening to other takes on Adams, this is one that really came up all the time. Quote, my country has in its wisdom contrived for me the most insignificant office that ever the invention of man contrived or his imagination conceived. I can do neither good nor evil. Mm-mm. Another one, quote, I am nothing, but I may be everything. May be everything. Wow. Yeah. So you're really getting the sense he he was already not happy about how he got elected to office. And then he gets to this office and just feels like it is pointless. He is just wasting his time. And especially, you know, like I said, John Adams came into this and, oh, I can get involved in Senate matters. And the senators were like, hold on, buddy. Um, You're not a senator. (laughs) We don't care. We're going to debate. You just sit up there and we're not going to say look pretty, (laughs) but, you know, just just sit. Just sit and shut up. Just sit and (laughs) shut up. Yes. Wow. Adams would also bemoan one of his few powers, which is that of being the tie-breaking vote in the Senate. So again, in this role as president of the Senate, if there's a tie, the vice president gets to cast the deciding vote. Mm -hmm. Adams wrote that, quote, every unpopular point is invariably left to me to determine so that I must be the scapegoat to bear all their sins without a possibility of acquiring any share in the honor of any of their popular deeds. So instead of looking at this as, you know, being able to actually have that say in Senate business, one of the few times it was proper for him to do so, he basically concluded, well, they can't decide, and it doesn't matter how I vote, half of the Senate is going to be unhappy with me, which... Technically, yeah, you can look at it that way. Adams would ask the question of whether anyone else in Congress, quote, ran the gauntlet among halters, axes, libels, daggers, cannonballs, and pistol bullets, as I have done. He is really in that mode of poor me. Looks like the party of one is just getting more bitter by the moment. Yes, it didn't help that. One senator referred to Adams as, quote, his superfluous excellency. Wow. Goodness gracious. Senator McClay, meanwhile, would assert that, quote, John Adams has neither judgment, firmness of mind, nor respectability of deportment to fill the chair of such an assembly as the Senate. Real. <laughs> wow. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, this vice presidency thing is... <laughs> <laughs> getting rather interesting huh? contentious a little just perhaps? a little bit yeah. and this is even before the party start up wow you know yeah. this is just, just everybody dishing it out on john adams well he's not doing himself any favors either no no he's not but john adams being john adams he was not going to stop from putting his thoughts out there mm. 
Starting in April 1790 and carrying through the next year, a series of 32 newspaper essays titled Discourses on Davila were published. As noted by Adams biographer John Furling, quote, in part he, i.e. Adams, published his thoughts under the misapprehension that he could explain himself to the American people and that popular opinion would swing back around to his side. The series of essays, quote, placed much greater emphasis than his previous works on the dangers posed by unbridled democracy. Now, Adams was not alone in this, in this fear of kind of democracy going too far. Mm. And Furling notes that, quote, he, i.e., Adams, represented a strain of conservatism that had existed since the beginning of the protest movement against Great Britain and that had grown in strength in the course of the 1780s. Adams and others of this persuasion looked forward to the emergence of the United States as a modern nation-state with a centralized government capable of raising sufficient revenue, regulating trade, conducting foreign policy, and, for some, organizing a standing army. So, basically, this is more this idea of central government, Mm -hmm. having that authority. And the 1780s, you know, we saw with... The Articles of Confederation, it was such a loose confederation that there was no central authority. There was no power and everything was just going off the rails. Mm. And so the Constitution is supposed to address that and make more of this federal government with centralized authority. And Adams is very much for that. And he's making it known he is very much for that. Because even though at the time, you know, these essays would be published typically under pseudonyms, Adams made sure that people knew this was him. Mm. So, though Adams was outside of the president's inner circle, it didn't mean that Adams was not a supporter of the Washington administration and its policies. Far from it. The vice president frequently attended the president's public events, including his dinner parties and levees, as well as accompanying Washington on part of his tour of New England in 1789 and attending commencement ceremonies at King's College in New York with the president. Washington may not have wanted his official opinion, but personally, it seems like the two got on well, as Adams did from time to time dine alone with the president and First Lady Martha Washington, and the president would at times summon the vice president for a cup of tea in the late afternoon, or a long horseback ride, or an evening at the theater. Mm -hmm. Could they have discussed the issues of the day in these informal encounters? Of course. But if they did, they didn't leave any record of it. But it's interesting because we kind of see this parallel in the modern era where it's expected that the president and vice president have like a weekly lunch, you know, standing lunch date. And so you kind of see something similar with Washington and Adams. Mm -hmm. So, you know, so many accounts of his vice presidency are like, well, you know, Washington never spoke to him. No, he did. They saw each other quite frequently. It's just in terms of official business. Adams wasn't invited to be part of cabinet meetings. He wasn't really asked for his formal opinion on the matters of the day. But as we all know, behind the scenes, in dinners, over a cup of tea, whatever, it's quite possible that they did discuss matters. I wonder if part of that was posturing on Washington's part just because of the, I won't say animosity, but just the the awkward nature at which Adams started the vice presidency. Do you think it was partly because Washington did value his judgment? He just didn't want it to be publicly known, perhaps? Possibly. 
possibly. Mm-hmm. And, and that's quite possible because, you know, all eyes were on Washington. Yeah. You know, he was the first president. He had been this monumental national figure for so long and he knew all eyes were on him. He also knew that sometimes you need it to not have eyes on you mm-hmm. to make decisions, to be able to think of things. So it's quite possible that he used this to his advantage right. in that. And Adams had enough respect for him and for the office that he wasn't, this was one thing he wasn't going to go around gossiping about. Oh, right. well, guess what? Washington asked me my opinion on this. But then again, maybe he didn't. We have no way of knowing. Yeah. In terms of his constitutional duties, Adams was quite diligent in his role in presiding over the Senate. His wife, Abigail, quipped at one point that Adams never left the presiding officer's chair. Again, this is the first vice presidency. We'll see in the future. Sometimes future vice presidents weren't quite as diligent about being in that presiding chair, but Adams took it seriously. He was like, this is one of the things that I'm constitutionally supposed to do, so I'm going to be here. Even though he complained about it. Even though he complained about it. All right. He took that as his prerogative. Okay. As President Washington did, so too did Adams typically use the breaks in the congressional session to return home to Massachusetts to check in on affairs there. In terms of social life, the Adamses enjoyed their time while the nation's capital was in New York, as it meant that they were close to their daughter, Nabby. John and Abigail, quote, rented a proper country seat, Richmond Hill, a mile north of town on a high promontory beside the Hudson with sweeping views and normally always a breeze. Both Adamses loved it, and the vice president wrote that, quote, never did I live in so delightful a spot. Mm. Though the Adamses were reunited with their old friend Thomas Jefferson when he arrived in New York City in April 1790 to take up his post as Secretary of State, it seems like their interactions were cordial, but they would soon find themselves on opposite sides of the political spectrum. Meanwhile, there was a scare in May 1790 over the life of President Washington. Vice President Adams braced himself for the responsibility that he could inherit should Washington pass, while Abigail Adams wrote to her sister concerned that, quote, at this early day, when neither our finances are arranged nor our government sufficiently cemented to promise duration, his death, talking about Washington's, mm-hmm. would, I fear, have had most disastrous consequences. Thankfully, Washington did survive, and Adams would continue to preside over the Senate. When Congress adjourned on August 12th, however, the Adamses had to prepare for another move as the nation's capital was moving to Philadelphia, thanks to the recently passed Residency Act, which specified that after 10 years of temporarily being in the city of brotherly love, the capital would once more move to a new city, which was being constructed on the Potomac River. And at that point, it was the border between Maryland and Virginia. Mm -hmm. And so, of course, this would be what became Washington, D.C. But for that 10 years while they were constructing the new capital, the capital would be in Philadelphia. And so Adams found a home called Bush Hill, which was, quote, a substantial brick house two miles west of Philadelphia, overlooking the Schuylkill. In a rare exception to his typical rule to not accept invitations to dinner, President Washington and First Lady Martha Washington would come to this new home to dine with the Adamses. Meanwhile, their children would come to visit, and their first winter there, Abigail was thrilled, quote, that for the first time in years, she had all three sons together under her roof. 
The spring of 1791, however, would bring a moment of strain in the relationship of the vice president with Secretary of State Jefferson. When a copy of Thomas Paine's pamphlet, The Rights of Man, arrived in Philadelphia, Jefferson sent it on to a printer in Philadelphia to publish an American edition and wrote a note to the printer proclaiming it, quote, the answer to the political heresies that have sprung up among us. Unfortunately for Jefferson, the printer didn't realize that note was just for him. Oh. And he decided that Jefferson had sent it to be published with the pamphlet, so his endorsement was featured on the title page of the first American edition. Awkward. It was well known, and indeed, Jefferson acknowledged privately that the reference to political heresies was directed at Adams's discourses on Davila. Mm-hmm. A chilly silence developed between the two men, and shortly after, a series of letters written under the pseudonym Publicola were published in the Columbian Sentinel of Boston, attacking Payne's pamphlet along with Jefferson's endorsement of the work. Wow. Publicola wrote that, quote, I'm somewhat at a loss to determine what this very respectable gentleman, i.e. Jefferson, means by political heresies. Does he consider this pamphlet of Mr. Payne's as a canonical book of political scripture? I've always understood, sir, that the citizens of these states were possessed of a full and entire freedom of opinion upon all subjects civil as well as religious. The only political tenet which they could stigmatize with the name of heresy would be that which should attempt to impose an opinion upon their understandings upon the single principle of authority. So this is saying, you know, I thought that this was a free nation. I thought that we were supposed to be able to have our own thoughts and beliefs. I mean, wasn't that what you argued for, Jefferson? Mm Mm-hmm. Months went by without a word from Jefferson. Then, on July 17th, he finally broke the silence in a letter to Adams. Rather than accept responsibility and admit that he had Adams in mind with his remark of, quote-unquote, political heresies, Jefferson blamed Publicola for the situation where, quote, our names were thrown on the public stage as public antagonists. Oh, goodness. So, I'm not the one who started this. Publicola did. Yeah, pass that buck. Pass the buck. Now, as author and historian David McCullough notes, Jefferson at this point, despite others speculating that Vice President Adams had written the Publicola letters, knew in fact that Adams's son, John Quincy, had been the author. So he knows that he's attacking the Vice President's son. Mm. And he knows that Adams knows that... <laughs> His son wrote these letters. Jefferson did at least offer the following olive branch. Quote, that you and I differ in our idea of the best form of government is well known to us both. But we have differed as friends should do, respecting the purity of each other's motives and confiding our differences of opinion to private conversation. And I can declare with truth in the presence of the Almighty, that nothing was further from my intention or expectation than to have either my own or your name brought before the public on this occasion. The friendship and confidence which has so long existed between us required this explanation from me, and I know you too well to fear any misconstruction of the motives of it. Mm-hmm. So, 
how do you think that Adams responded? He didn't. He did. Oh, he did. Okay. Hmm. So how do you think he responded? Uh, he didn't believe him. Adams replied that, quote, if you suppose that I have or ever had a design or desire of attempting to introduce a government of kings, lords, and commons, or, in other words, a hereditary executive, or a hereditary senate, either into the government of the United States or that of any individual state in this country, you are wholly mistaken. If you have ever put such a construction on anything of mine, I beg you would mention it to me, and I will undertake to convince you that it has no such meaning. You and I have never had a serious conversation together that I can recollect concerning the nature of government. Now, ooh, goodness. He's like a bulldog, isn't he? Just a little bit, which that's Mr. Adams. Mm -hmm. He's very pointed. Now, take this with a grain of salt, but as I reread this while researching, I can't help but feel that this was not only an expression of his distress at being publicly criticized by someone he respected and considered a friend, but also imposing in this situation all of his frustration at being maligned as a monarchist since the presidential titles controversy. Mm. So this isn't just, you know, the steal with Jefferson. I mean, you know, that I think that's part of mm. the the verve here. Why he's so passionate is because everybody is saying he's a monarchist. Everybody's saying that he wants to establish this monarchy, this hereditary monarchy and aristocracy and mm-hmm. This is John Adams who fought for independence, who fought for a republic. And he's like, I've even got this guy who says that he knows me so well thinking this. He's frustrated. Yeah. Catharsis. Yeah. Adams did at least end the letter on a good note, much as Jefferson had his. Quote, I thank you, sir, very seriously for writing to me. It is high time that you and I should come to an explanation with each other. Your motives for writing to me, I have not a doubt, were the most pure and the most friendly, and I have no suspicion that you will not receive this explanation from me in the same candid light. Hmm. Unfortunately, more water would have to flow under the bridge before the two could really, quote, come to an explanation with each other. For Jefferson replied with a defensive letter, again, assigning blame to Publicola. Oh, my gosh. Olive Branch extended, and Jefferson says, wait, I've got a few more things to say. Goodness. No reply came from Adams to the second letter, Mm -hmm. and the two would settle into a near total silence that would last until Adams' letter to Jefferson on January 1st, 1812 which would reignite a correspondence that would be celebrated across the ages where the two talked about life, history, their careers, religion, and much more. They actually did finally have those conversations with one another. As McCullough notes of this contemporary moment, though, quote, from this point on, Adams and Jefferson were seldom to be perceived as anything other than arch rivals. Wow. What a shame. Yeah. And, you know... At least they did eventually come back together. Mm-hmm. At least they did eventually make this peace with one another. We see other instances like 
Washington and Madison and Washington and Monroe where they didn't. Mm -hmm. They just had bitterness and then Washington died and they never made peace. So at least they did have a point where they made peace. It was just going to be a couple of decades down the road. Wow. Now, the Adamses had to move from Bush Hill in the autumn of 1791 as they were living beyond the means of the vice president's $5,000 annual salary. Thus, they moved, quote, to a modest dwelling in town at 4th and Arch Streets and let go most of the servants they'd hired for the household. The reality of the situation would continue to concern Adams throughout the remainder of his vice presidency that he could not, quote, afford to live in a style befitting the office. So, and this is one of the things that we talked about in our introductory episode. Mm -hmm. It isn't until the latter half of the 20th century that there's an actual home designated for the vice president, even though, you know, the president would ultimately have the president's house, the White House. Mm -hmm. There was nothing for the vice president. They had to make their own arrangements. And John Adams, thinking that this is an important office, the second office in the land, you need somewhere to entertain, but he can't afford it. Mm. He's only got $5,000 a year. He's already got his residence in... Massachusetts. Mm -hmm. He's got family to take care of. He's not wealthy. And so he's having to scale down. Adams kept up his diligent practice of presiding over the Senate when it was in session, despite the fact that he was concerned about, quote, such sedentary confinement of just sitting and watching the proceedings of that legislative body. So by this point, he's, he's got the hint. They don't want him involved. So he's just sitting there. And you've got to imagine, I mean, nobody would like that, but because that was his role, John Adams was going to do the job, even if he didn't really like it. I can imagine some of the side eye he was giving those people. (laughs) You've got to imagine that he was just sitting there like writing nasty grams. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. What are they talking about? No, 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 no. If I was debating this, I would say, (laughs) but this is drawing close to the end of his first term. Even with his discontent with the office, when the 1792 presidential election came around, Adams was back on the ballot. However, there was some concern that Adams would not get reelected. In early September, Secretary of the Treasury Alexander Hamilton wrote to Adams, urging him to return to Philadelphia as he felt that his absence from the nation's capital was benefiting the anti-federalist candidacy of George Clinton of New York. Adams, however, did not hurry back, especially as, even that late in the year, there was still no clear indication from Washington that he would serve another term. Mm. For his part, Adams did not see Clinton as a serious rival. But when Washington finally ended the suspense and agreed to serve as president for a second term, Naturally, he got votes from all the electors, and Adams was again the next highest vote getter with 77 votes, or 58.3% of the electors. So a little better than the first time. A little better than the first time. George Clinton came in third with 50 electoral votes, while Thomas Jefferson got four votes, and Aaron Burr of New York received one electoral vote. Mm. Now, I should note here that these will be the next three folks that we cover in this series, as all three would become vice president, though not necessarily in and the order. order. Yeah. yeah. So, spoiler alert, here's what's coming. <laughs> <laughs> so, 
The second term would prove more challenging than the first. Oh, my gosh. Both in terms of the political issues that came up, but also in a personal way for the vice president. Due to her ill health and the financial strain of both being away from home and not managing domestic business, Abigail Adams opted to remain at their home in Quincy for the entirety of the second term when John traveled to Philadelphia to preside over the Senate. As noted by David McCullough, quote, Separation had become a burden they must bear once again. And again, an extended correspondence resumed, one letter following another, back and forth between Quincy and Philadelphia, week upon week. That must have been so hard. Yes. Especially because I know he really valued her input and opinion into the office, I have no doubt. Yeah. He probably deferred a lot to her thoughts. Yeah, and and we get that in their letters, but Mm. then also in descriptions of them. You know, he really saw Abigail as this partner, a true partner. And so not having her there, Mm -hmm. you know, and not really having anybody there, he was just kind of there by himself. He had friends, he had, you know, acquaintances, but not having family there was hard on him, especially when he was doing a a job he didn't like. Right. And increasing animosity from previous friends. Yeah. Yeah. Meanwhile, the events of the day were going on. And of course, Adams was at the center of the nation's capital. He was there. He was hearing all that was going on. Not really in a place where he could do much of anything about it, but he did comment on some of these things. Learning of the execution of French King Louis XVI in 1793, though he would avoid public comment, Adams did write to a friend that, quote, mankind will in time discover that unbridled majorities are as tyrannical and cruel as unlimited despots. Mm. So I include this as it speaks to the impact this execution and the progression of what became known as the reign of terror would have on American politics. While you had some like Jefferson who embraced some of the more radical aspects of the French Revolution, people like Adams, you know, we were talking about that that conservative strain. So Adams and others turned away from the chaos that was spawned by what they dismissed as kind of mob rule. This mm-hmm. was this unbridled democracy that he was that he had warned about in his writings previously. Though an over-exaggeration, Adams's fear of the impact that the course of the French Revolution would have on the United States, we can see it in his description of the arrival of a new French minister to the U.S., Edmund Charles Genet, who was lauded on his journey to Philadelphia and greeted by thousands upon his arrival. Adams falsely claimed that a mob 10,000 strong roamed the streets of Philadelphia, quote, to drag Washington out of his house and forced the U.S. to declare war on Great Britain. Really hyperbolic language here. Hyperbole much. <laughs> yes. Just kind of taking it a little too far. You know, yes, there was this fervor. Yes, there was this great reception of Genet. Yes, Genet had plots. We don't get any indication that they were dragging Washington out and forcing him to declare war on Britain and all of this. But this was going on, and Adams was witnessing this. Meanwhile, the latter half of 1793 would bring another wave of fear to Philadelphia as the yellow fever epidemic claimed the lives of over 5,000 in the course of a few months. Wow, that's a lot of folks. Goodness. John and Abigail waited in worry at their home in Quincy over news of their son Thomas, who was living in the nation's capital at the time. So he was actually in Philadelphia Mm. 
when they started receiving reports of the the epidemic. Finally, in mid-October, they received a letter from Thomas that he had fled to New Jersey and needed money. Hey, guys, I'm okay. By the way, can you send some cash? Kind of reminds me of Sheridan on Keeping Up Appearances. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. The only time you hear from him is when he needs money. But with the epidemic subsiding, Adams returned to Philadelphia in late November 1793 to take his place once more presiding over the Senate. As he was there solo, he arranged to stay with Samuel Otis and his wife. Adams would continue to bemoan in his correspondence with Abigail his lack of influence. Of the political leaders in Philadelphia, Adams wrote, quote, They all know that I can do them neither much good nor much harm. Mm. So even in his second term, he's still going on about his lack of influence. So, you know, I'd said that Adams and Jefferson, they started developing a rift. They were seen as arch rivals. Well, they still saw each other. I mean, it wasn't Mm -hmm. that they were completely cut off from communication with one another. They were seen as arch rivals, but they still did, you know, attend meetings together, you know, the American Philosophical Society, things like that. And when Jefferson resigned his post at the State Department at the end of 1793, Adams sent him a book and a letter, and the two would maintain rather steady correspondence for the next two years, which would, of course, cut off when the presidential election neared. Mm -hmm. While Adams was in a state of limbo in his second term, his children were advancing in their careers and lives. Thomas was admitted to the bar in Philadelphia, making him the third of Adams' sons to become a lawyer. Their daughter, Nabby, and her husband, William Smith, returned to the U.S. from England with what McCullough described as, quote, a measure of welcome prosperity, though Adams worried about his son-in-law's future prospects. The biggest news, however, came on May 26th, when the vice president learned that his son, John Quincy, was being nominated by Washington as U.S. Minister to the Netherlands. Mm. Though John Quincy, when informed, replied that he, quote, rather wished it, i.e. his nomination, had not been made at all, he would agree to take up the posting, and this would prove to be the beginning of a lengthy diplomatic career that would take the younger Adams to various European capitals before ultimately leading U.S. foreign policy, first as Secretary of State, then as President. Mm -hmm. 1795 would bring news to John and Abigail Adams of their son Charles's intent to marry Sally Smith, his sister Nabby's sister-in-law. Charles's parents objected to this and got him to hold off for a few months. They were like, mm, we're not really sure that this is, this is the right move for you. Ultimately, though, as young people want to do, mm-hmm. Charles and Sally went through the marriage. And when the vice president stopped in on the newlyweds in New York on his way back to Philadelphia in December, he found the two settled in well and noted that Sally, quote, behaved prettily in her new sphere. I'm not sure how you behave prettily, but apparently she did. Okay. Wow. As the first session of the 4th U.S. Congress began in December 1795, John wrote back to Abigail that, quote, I am heir apparent, you know. Despite his insignificance as vice president, Adams realized that he was, by virtue of the role itself, gifted with already being thought of as the next up for president. While Abigail was concerned, she remarked that, quote, I can say only that circumstances must govern you and pray that you have superior direction. She did assert, however, a sentiment that I imagine John agreed with, quote, 
I will be second under no man but Washington. Another term as vice president under another president was unacceptable. Yeah. It was either he gets to the top office or see ya, I'm out. Right. As talk of Jefferson as Washington's successor kicked up in early 1796, John wrote to Abigail that, quote, I'm weary of the game. Abigail warned her husband that, quote, you know what is before you, the whips, the scorpions, the thorns without roses, the dangers, anxieties, the weight of empire. Still, she did feel that the presidency would be a, quote, glorious reward for Adams's years of service to the nation. But Adams began to doubt in his self-reflection about what course he should take. He wrote to Abigail that, quote, I hate speeches, messages, addresses, proclamations, and such affected, constrained things. I hate levees and drawing rooms. I hate to speak to a thousand people to whom I have nothing to say. Yet all this I can do. So what does he want to do? I mean, it doesn't sound like there's any pleas in this dude. <laughs> he doesn't want to just sit there. Right. But he doesn't want to talk either. Or at least not in this way. Well, I'm going to just say right now, based on what I've heard, and we're talking about he's anti-monarch, he's very much a monarch because he is a big drama queen. <laughs> <laughs> just a little bit. Just a little bit. Just saying. Just saying. But yeah, so, you know... It, and it's it's a weird place to be in. And especially like he had seen for eight years, and especially towards the end of his second term, Washington was starting to be criticized. Mm -hmm. And so you've got to imagine that John and Abigail are thinking, hey, if Washington is being criticized, yeah, what are they going to do with you? <laughs> that they haven't done already. <laughs> that they haven't done already. But then again, it's also like, hey, you've already been there. I think you can handle it. When President Washington's farewell address was published on September 19, 1796, announcing that he would not seek a third term as president, the path was clear for other candidates to become the next president. As Adams had been a loyal VP for eight years, he was seen as a safe bet for Federalists, while Thomas Pinckney of South Carolina, whose treaty with Spain negotiated in 1795, was highly popular was put forward as Adams's running mate. Mm -hmm. So this is, we're starting to get to that time where you do have a presidential ticket. And so it's saying, you know, Adams should be the next president. Mm -hmm. He's been here. He's done so much in his career. And this other guy, Thomas Pinckney, he's younger. He'd be a good running mate. He'd be a good VP and possibly president someday. By this point, though, there was a clear opposition that had formed. And that opposition was putting forward Thomas Jefferson of Virginia as their candidate for president, while Aaron Burr, a senator from New York, was the favorite for the vice presidential nomination. Mm -hmm. Adams returned home on May 6, 1796, and would spend the rest of the year focusing on his farm and watching and waiting for news of the upcoming election. So this was a time that it was seen as improper for candidates to actually go out and campaign for themselves. And so partisans would attack the other side back and forth. Names of Adams and Jefferson, respectively, would be pilloried in the papers of the opposing side while praised by supporters of their own faction. And so they just had to sit there and watch all this play out. They couldn't actually do anything, which Adams had had practice over the last eight years of mm. doing nothing. Right. Adams 
knew that he had a reason to be concerned, not just from Jefferson and his supporters, but word was coming his way that Alexander Hamilton was again working behind the scenes to influence the election. This guy, yet again. My gosh. So when did he find out about Hamilton undermining the election the first time? So it was actually around this time. Okay, so it's all coming to light at about the same time. It's starting to come to light that Hamilton has been influencing Mm -hmm. things behind the scenes. Because this time, Hamilton was scheming to possibly have Thomas Pinckney surpass Adams in the vote total and become president. So again, we've got that electoral system where each elector casts two ballots, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't specify which one is for president or vice president. If Hamilton can convince enough electors to not vote for Adams, but vote for Pinckney, or the other way around, if he can convince Democratic Republicans to vote for Jefferson and Pinckney, both Southerners, Mm -hmm. you know, Southerners, don't you want somebody in charge? Maybe Pinckney can be the top vote getter. Now, Hamilton did want to ensure that the full Federalist ticket would get in office and Jefferson would be denied both spots, but he was willing to do whatever it took to make that happen. He wanted Pinckney at the top, Adams as vice president yet again, because he felt that Pinckney would be more pliable to his will Mm -hmm. than he knew Adams would. Adams, everybody knew Adams had his ideas and he didn't care what Alexander Hamilton thought. This little puppy, as I've heard him referred to. The puppy, yes. God, an annoying puppy at that. John Adams pronounced Hamilton, quote, as great a hypocrite as any in the U.S. And Abigail started referring to the former Treasury Secretary as Cassius. Oof. So the Adamses are not happy with Alexander Hamilton. Rightfully so. Adams returned to Philadelphia in early December 1796 to preside over the Senate and wait to hear his fate. He wrote to Abigail a few days after his arrival that, quote, I laugh at myself 20 times a day for my feelings and meditations and speculations in which I find myself engaged. Vanity suffers. Cold feelings of unpopularity, humble reflections, mortifications, humiliation, plans of future life. Economy, retrenching of expenses, farming, return to the bar, drawing writs, arguing causes, taking clerks, humiliations of my country under foreign bribes, measures to counteract them. All this miserable nonsense will come and go like evil into the thoughts of gods or men, approved or unapproved. I can pronounce Thomas Jefferson to be chosen president of the United States with firmness and a good grace. That I don't fear. But here alone abed, by my fireside, nobody to speak to, pouring upon my disgrace and future prospects. This is ugly. The 16th of February will soon come, and then I take my leave forever then for frugality and independence, poverty and patriotism, love and a carrot bed. So he's coming to terms with the idea of what if I lose? Yeah. And, you know, it is one of those things. And even for somebody like John Adams, somebody who, you know, thinks very highly of himself, he still sees, I may not have this. 
And so he has to start thinking about, well, what's really going to hurt? I'm going to be okay with Jefferson being president. The thing that's really going to hurt is that I was rejected by the country. Yeah. A week later, though, it was clear to everyone that Adams had won the presidency. Oh, gosh. <laughs> drama queen. <laughs> there we go with the drama again. Bless him. Even partisan Jeffersonian Republicans were praising him once it was learned that Adams had won the presidency. Benjamin Franklin Bosch asserted in comparing the president-elect to President Washington that, quote, there can be no doubt that Adams would not be a puppet, that having an opinion and judgment of his own, he would act from his own impulses rather than the impulses of others, that possessing great integrity, that he would not sacrifice his country's interest at the shrine of party. In addition, it is well known that Adams is an aristocrat only in theory, but that Washington is one in practice. Ooh-wee! Talking about the father of our country. (laughs) (laughs) There was no love lost between Washington and Bosch. Uh, Apparently not. Meanwhile, Representative William Branch Childs, Democratic Republican from Virginia, remarked that, quote, the old man, i.e. Adams, will make a good president too. So even people on the other side of the political spectrum were saying, you know what? I mean, he is a respectable guy. He's he's going to lead as he thinks is best. Mm-hmm. He's not going to be led by others, you know, and especially on the Democratic Republican side, they're like, okay, this means Alexander Hamilton isn't going to be running things from behind the scenes. Right. You know, they had this idea that he was manipulating Washington, that Washington was his puppet. And they knew John Adams was not going to be mm-hmm. anybody's puppet. Especially his. <laughs> Especially his. Despite Hamilton's efforts, whereas Adams won the presidency with 71 electoral votes, Jefferson ended up with 68 electoral votes, and Pinckney was third with 59. So Hamilton's plan failed spectacularly. Mm -hmm. Not only did Pinckney not end up as president, Jefferson ended up as vice president. In four states, electors cast ballots for both Adams and Jefferson, and only in one of those, Maryland, did Adams get more votes than the man who was to succeed him as vice president. In the three others, which was North Carolina, Pennsylvania, and Virginia, while Jefferson racked up double-digit ballots, Adams only got one vote in each respective state. Ooh, wow. Still, Adams secured electoral votes from all but four states, Georgia, Kentucky, South Carolina, and Tennessee, while Jefferson's votes came from all the southern states Mm -hmm. but Delaware and 14 electoral votes from Pennsylvania. So we're seeing, you know, Adams is getting more of a, you know, across the nation vote. Jefferson's is really contained to the South and Pennsylvania. We'll talk more about things from Jefferson's perspective in his episode. But for now, let's just wrap up Adams' tenure as vice president. The votes were officially counted on February 8th, 1797, and the Adamses made preparation for the transition. On March 4th, 1797, Thomas Jefferson was inaugurated as the second vice president of the United States in the Senate chamber of Congress Hall in Philadelphia, then made his way downstairs to the House chamber where the outgoing president entered, followed by the president-elect. Mm-hmm. 
So this was one of those monumental points. Washington, Adams, Jefferson, all together. For, for the one last time, probably. For the last time. Yeah. Adams had been unable to sleep the day prior as he was anxious about his performance at the inauguration. And none of his family was in town with him for this auspicious occasion to help to provide moral support. Still, once he took his oath of office as president, Adams left office after eight years as vice president to take on a new and completely different set of responsibilities. Now, we'll talk more in a minute about our thoughts on his tenure, but to put in perspective some of his impact as vice president, as of 2023, John Adams cast the third highest number of tie-breaking votes in the Senate behind John C. Calhoun and our current vice president, Kamala Harris. He cast votes on such impactful matters as the ability of the president to remove cabinet members without the consent of the Senate, the location of the nation's capital, and keeping the United States neutral in the conflict between Britain and France. Mm -hmm. While at times and in certain spheres, he was relegated to the background, Adams, like the president he served under, made decisions which would set precedents about the role and responsibilities of the vice president, which, in some respects, continue to impact the holders of that office to the present day. Now, we know what happened to Adams after his vice presidency. So after four tumultuous years as president, which was a tenure that included the XYZ affair, the Quasi-War, the Alien and Sedition Acts, Gabriel's Rebellion, and much more, all of which we discussed in full detail in the Adams Presidency series. Check it out if you haven't already. Adams would stand for re-election in 1800. It would not go well. And after a tie vote and 36 ballots, as we'll discuss more about in our next two episodes, Adams' VP, Thomas Jefferson, would succeed him as president, and Aaron Burr would become the third vice president. Adams returned home in retirement to Quincy and carried on an extensive correspondence. In his latter years, the former president watched the political rise of his oldest son, John Quincy, a rise which saw him attain the presidency as well, though his term was in some ways as contentious as his father's, and, like his father, the younger Adams would also lose his re-election bid. John Adams would not have to watch his son's defeat, however, for he passed away on July 4th, 1826, at the age of 90. And so that is the vice presidency of John Adams. So for our listeners, just to let you know the commitment that we have here at Presidencies, this is actually the third time due to some recording issues that we are having this conversation about John Adams. Hopefully in take three, we have refined our talking points and are ready to really rate him and review him. But just know that is our level of commitment here. We are willing to talk about John Adams as many times as we have to for your benefit. We so, don't play. We don't play. So, Alex, what are your initial thoughts about John Adams' vice presidency? Well, I think, as I've said twice before, <laughs> although no one's heard it, uh, I think he did not do himself many, if any, favors. But ultimately, he was a victim of circumstance. So I think that he brought a lot to the table. He certainly didn't do himself any favors. And um, his vanity got the better of him uh, more often than not. And I think that was uh, a big detriment to his VP role. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and let's go big picture for the moment. Let's look at the resume. So this round looks at the overall career and character of the vice president. 
and Alex, we can award up to 10 points maximum each. So what are your thoughts? I mean, this is John Adams we're talking about here. He was the first vice president, second president of the United States. He served as a diplomat abroad. He served in the Continental Congress. He served in all these important roles over his life. What do you think about his overall career and character? Well, his overall career and character, as I said before, he brought a lot to the table. And so if I were going to score him um, up to 10 points, I would probably say eight points because... He really did have a well-rounded breadth of knowledge, but unfortunately, he he was a bit out of touch with with, Mm -hmm. uh, what was going on in the ground in the U.S., so I don't think that did him any favors, but I'd give him eight out of ten. Yeah. Yeah, and and I think I'm going to match you on that eight because, and again, this is John Adams we're talking about here. You know, he doesn't always get the attention that folks like Washington and Jefferson get. He's starting to get more you know, in the past few decades, after David McCullough's biography, after the miniseries came mm-hmm. out with Paul Giamatti, you know, he's gotten more attention. But even without that, this is a good career. You know, this yeah. is somebody who rose from being a lawyer. And granted, many of the folks we're going to talk about were lawyers at some point in their career. But he rose from kind of being this lawyer in the country in Massachusetts Mm -hmm. to becoming president. You know, you don't get much better than that. But at the same time, he didn't really go all the way. You know, he lost his bid for reelection in terms of being vice president. And we can talk more about this as we go along. Mm -hmm. You know, to your point, Alex, he didn't do himself any favors. Sometimes his vanity did get in the way of things. He was kind of out of touch when he first came. So, you know, it's a great, career, but it just doesn't, I don't feel like it's a, a 10. I feel like an eight is kind of a good place yeah, for him. I think eight on paper. Yeah. Eight yeah. for sure. So with an eight and an eight, that is 16 points. Good start. But now let's go to the campaign poster. Oh yeah. So I've seen this before, but I'll let you do the big reveal again. <laughs> let me do the big reveal right. again. And just, let's just say that it's not that complimentary uh a painting or poster or whatever you want to call it it's it's not a good look but so we'll see if i feel any better about it today than i did yesterday <laughs> when we recorded before we will see All so right. for our listeners the campaign poster this round examines the physical appearance of the vice president in their official portrait or photograph and again we can award up to 10 points maximum each and so this painting is actually a painting of Adams by John Trumbull, and it is circa 1792. So this is, he's wrapping up the first term, about to go into the second term as vice president. So Alex, here is the big reveal. Part and, three. <laughs> and if you would kind of describe this portrait for our listeners. So he's kind of got this pensive dour look on his face like oh my god what am i doing here why am i having to be subjected to all this so so basically this was done while he was presiding over the senate why am i here why am i here (laughs) yeah you totally get that um with this campaign poster for sure i mean he does not look like a happy man um but he signs up for you know part two throws his name in the hat for you know a second election and obviously he he got that so yeah not the best campaign poster certainly would not fly today for sure so what am I going to score it? Yes. I'm going to say out of 10 points, I'm going to give this a six because it's um, it's not 
great. But I guess it is kind of a a sign of the times. He's he's got this, you know, very um, I won't say regal, but certainly he's just he's got a very interesting look on his face. Well, it almost seems like, and so um, I will be posting this around the time of release. There'll be the cover art for this episode, and I'll I'll share it on social media as well. You'll see what I mean. But basically, it's this black background and just him. And you can tell like he's trying to look official, mm-hmm. but at the same time, you can kind of hear what's going on in his mind. And it's not so good. No. <laughs> it it kind of come, comes across that it's not so good up in his mind. Yeah. But I think it's a fair, you know, it's not awful. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to give it a five. Huh? And, you know, I'd say this is kind of middle of the road. It's it's basically what you would expect from a vice president who was trying not to shine too much for fear of outshining the president. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I'd say a five. Okay. So with that six and a five, that's 11 for the campaign poster category, uh, which gets him up to 27 points. Right. So he's doing well thus far. Yeah. But let's see what happens next. Let's see what happens next, because we are going to go to our friend or foe round. And this round evaluates whether the vice president supported the work of the administration or undercut the administration's efforts. And in this round, we can actually either award up to 10 points or we can take away up to 10 points each. So we can either go positive or negative Mm. based on if we feel that he was an actual ally to the administration or a detriment. So here's where the victim of circumstance uh, bit comes in. So I don't think he was actively working against the administration, but I just think by virtue of his being the first vice president, the fact that George Washington kept him at arm's length, just kind of kept him relegated to, you know, this non-cabinet level uh, role, as it were, he didn't have a chance to really do much. So with that said, I'm going to give him a three. Yeah. Yeah, and and that's the thing. It and granted, you know, at this point in the vice presidency, and given where where he's at, it is tough for him to really do much to help support the vice presidency, or, or, or to help to support the president and his administration. You definitely do get the sense that he is supporting Washington and his administration and what they're doing. He's not, you know, actively working against it or anything. But he really can't do much. Mm-hmm. However, we do need to keep in mind, you know, and especially like with some of the tie-breaking votes that he cast, yeah. these were things that were done to help to push administration proposals and agendas forward. So in that way, he did help the administration, mm-hmm. but it was a very limited scope. So I think I'm going to match your three. Mm-hmm. And so with a three and a three, that is six for friend or foe. We think that he was a friend, just not that great of one. And so that gets him up to 33 points. But now we've got to ask ourselves if he was a drag on the ticket. Mm. Now, this round discusses any disgraceful behavior of or actions committed by the vice president And this disgrace does not have to be during their tenure of office as vice president. And here it's going to be completely negative. So we can take away up to 10 points each. 
where to begin. Mm. <laughs> so his, and I've mentioned him being a drama queen before. So this is to me where this really comes uh, to fruition. His use of hyperbole in describing what was going on when it was a Janae. Janae. Yeah, it came. And I just thought that that was a bit melodramatic. I don't think that did him any favors. Certainly post-vice presidency, his assassination, <laughs> figuratively speaking, of Alexander Hamilton's character after the man was assassinated, technically, or you know, killed in a duel, was just, wow, bitter, 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 bitter. So I've got to say, I'm going to give him a negative two points here. I'm taking two points away. Yeah, and and just for our listeners, we didn't really talk about this in this episode, but basically with this rivalry that he had with Alexander Hamilton, it kept on long after Hamilton was dead and other folks who had been enemies of his, who who hadn't really liked him, they felt a bit more sympathetic, you know. I mean, he was killed in an untimely manner in a duel. Burr was really seen as the villain of this. So other folks have kind of let it go and we're starting to see him in a better light. Not John Adams. Mm. Like John Adams was still writing letters and I mean, just vilifying him, talking about how awful he was and how evil he was. And that just doesn't look good. You know, that's not, you know, Sometimes you just got to let those things go. And especially at that point, the man was dead and gone. And you've still got, I mean, you made it to the presidency. You made it to the vice presidency. He never did that. And it was still constantly attacking Hamilton. And so that doesn't look good for Mr. Adams. Not at all. But, you know, we're also, we're going to have some folks that we're going to talk about that are really scandalous you know that's that's coming and especially a few of the folks who are coming up in our next few episodes we're going to have some stuff to talk about but really his his vanity and holding grudges is really really all that we've got for adams in terms of scandal you know how much blame can we assign to him for the alien and sedition acts mm. He wasn't necessarily in support of those. He did sign them, but he also, he had this view of what was appropriate for a president to veto. And from what I read, it just sounds like it didn't pass that muster. You know, mm -hmm. it didn't meet that mark for him. And so that's why he signed it, even though he didn't agree with it. But still, he did sign the Alien and Sedition Act. So, you know, there's some scandal there. But really, there's not much. Mm -hmm. And so I think I'm going to join you in the negative two. Okay. And so negative two, negative two. So we're taking away four points. So he is now at 29 points. But he has an opportunity to earn a few more points. Lucky for him. Starting with the tenure of office. So this is the entire time that the vice president served, which will be counted as points in this round. So John Adams... Served out two terms, so he gets eight points here for eight years. And this is one of the things that we're going to see as we go along. Until recently, vice presidents typically didn't last two terms, mm -hmm. whether through their deaths or at points they were just replaced on the ticket with somebody else who was thought to be a better fit or thought to bring something more to the table. So... 
a vice president that actually served two terms is a bit of a rarity. So kudos to him. He actually survived the vice presidency. And he will actually get a point for that because there are so many vice presidents who didn't survive the vice presidency. So he does get one bonus point for surviving. Kudos to you, John. (laughs) You bitter party of one, you. You bitter party of one. (laughs) Bonus points are also awarded for each election that the vice president's home state went for the ticket when the VP was at the bottom of the ticket. So he doesn't get points for 1796 because he was the intended presidential candidate. But in the 1788 and 1792 elections, Massachusetts, his home state, did go for Washington Adams. So he gets two points there. He does not get a point for serving in a lower office after his tenure as vice president. Mm -hmm. He was president after and then went to retirement. But because he did become president, he does earn one more bonus point. So out of five possible bonus points, he scores four. Okay. And that means that he ends with a total of 41 points. 41 out of a total potential of how many? Out of a possible total of 73 points. Okay. So, you know, that's pretty good. You know, it's still somewhere in the middle, a little on the higher range, but still, you know, doing good. Fair to Midland. Fair to Midland, as they say here in the South. (laughs) Fair to Midland. Kind of how he was in those elections. Especially in that campaign poster. (laughs) (laughs) But we do have one more question to ask. Alex, after all I've shared about John Adams's life and career and what we've discussed, do you think that this vice president is notable enough or impactful enough to preside from the Senate rostrum? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I mean, being that he brought so much to the role, he didn't execute as well as he could have possibly, but he was the first vice president, victim of circumstance that he was. I think he did the best he could, given the the circumstances that he was in. So, yeah, I I definitely would say so. And I agree. And the thing is, you know, could he have done more? Possibly. Sometimes he didn't do himself any favors. But by and large, his vice presidency went off well Mm -hmm. based on what the expectations were. And that's the thing that's so difficult with the vice presidency at this point and arguably to the present day, there's still so much that the vice president's role is determined by other people and Mm -hmm. other people's expectations, whether that's the president, the Senate, you know, it's kind of outside of their control. But I think that he navigated the waters well, and he established precedents for what the vice presidency was that for better or worse would carry on. And in some cases to the present day. So, mm-hmm. you know, this is somebody we are going to talk about John Adams as the first vice president, as the president. He's somebody who is going to be talked about and remembered. So I agree. Congratulations, John. You win this extra honor and hopefully it will help you to be a little less bitter. One can only hope. Bless your heart. <laughs> Bless your heart. And so with that, We are done talking about the vice presidency of John Adams. Alex, as always, thank you so much for being here. And I hope you're looking forward to our next vice president, Thomas Jefferson. I am. And I'm definitely looking forward to the one after that, because I think that's going to get pretty interesting. 
Oh, yes. Yeah, I'm Aaron ready to bring Burr, out my snark. <laughs> Aaron Burr is going to be an interesting one. But even with Thomas Jefferson, yeah. we're going to have some things to talk about. And especially look out for that friend or foe round. Mm. I think yeah. we've got some conversations to have there. Yep. But we will see what happens next time. In the meantime, for our listeners, please feel free to reach out. You can get in touch with us through email at presidenciespodcast at gmail.com. Or you can reach out on social media. We're available on Facebook, Mastodon, and Post as Presidencies. On Twitter as Presidencies89, although that's assuming that Twitter is still a thing when this episode is released. Right now, we're in one of those times that seems to come up every month or so now that everybody's worried that Twitter is about to collapse. But mm. we'll see what happens. If Twitter's still there, we will be there at Presidencies89. And also available on Instagram at Presidencies Podcast. That's all one word. You can find out more about vice presidents and presidents at the website, which is presidenciespodcast.com. Please, if you'd like to support the podcast, uh, we'd love to have you join as a patron. Uh, look on patreon.com slash presidencies for that information. If nothing else, if you wouldn't mind, please leave a rating and review. If you like what you've heard, please help us to get the word out there about presidencies and about this new special series. We greatly appreciate all the great comments that folks have left thus far. And finally, last but certainly not least, I want to thank you for listening. Until next time, stay safe and healthy, be kind to one another, and take care, dear friends. A news story gets shared by a friend on social media, or you catch a tweet that really makes your blood boil. But how do you separate fact from fiction? That's the premise behind Disinformation, a 10-part series from Evergreen Podcasts and Emergent Risk International coming this fall. Tune in to Disinformation wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, don't believe everything you read.